Marshall here. Welcome back to Counterbalance. everyone. I hope you're having a great week so far. We have an excellent conversation to bring you. I recently spoke with Elbridge Colby. He is the co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative. He was a deputy assistant secretary of defense for strategy and force development from 2017 to 2018. And most importantly, if you cover these foreign policy spaces and national defense areas, he led the development of the really landmark and deeply impactful 2018 National Defense Strategy. Elbridge has recently written The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. And this conversation is one I've been wanting to have with him. I've already spoken with him on the realignment. He recently did an event at Hudson with Ken Weinstein that you all should check out. But what Bridge does so well in this conversation and in the book is really get at what are the questions that all of us should be asking moving forward as we pivot away from Afghanistan, as we're increasingly having conversations about Taiwan, China, the capacities of the US federal government and the broader foreign policy community. It's one of those conversations where regardless of how you come down on the specific answers that Bridge puts forward. He does a great job of setting the table in a way that reflects the fact that each and every one of us, regardless of our individual policy positions, is going to have to reckon with. So, so many great things here. US, China, case for optimism, questions we should be asking, how we're going to have to shift our mentalities to approach the great power conflict challenge with China. Lots of great stuff here. Before we go in, of course, a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. And I just want to say I'm super excited to be producing episodes consistently again. This is a really great time and would love to hear more from listeners about other conversations we should have. Let's get into the episode. Elbridge Colby, welcome to Counterbalance. Great to be here, Marshall. Thanks for having me. I really enjoy speaking with authors a bit deeper into the book tour you get most of the questions out of the way and you can reflect a bit more, especially around the reaction. But for listeners who haven't gotten the chance to hear about your work, who missed um, the episode we did on the realignment or missed your Hudson panel last week, let's just start at the top. What is the strategy of denial? We'll be very literal at the beginning here. Sure. It's a, it's a twofold strategy. It's a geopolitical and then a military strategy. You need to have a, the right military strategy to, you know, substantiate a geopolitical strategy. And basically the idea is we need a clearer strategy in this period of, uh, in which we're not clearly predominant in the world anymore. We don't have the super abundance of power that we thought we did, at least in the unipolar moment. And so we, you know, we need to have a strategy. We need to decide how to make allocations of our resources and effort and, and risk and so forth uh, for, you know, op optimal outcomes. And in that context, it's important to have a framework. And, and my argument is that what we really want to do, the most important interest in the service of, of the fundamental goal of American foreign policy, which is the preservation and promotion of Americans' uh, security, freedom, and prosperity, that, that paramount goal is to deny any other country the ability to dominate one of the world's key market areas. And those market areas are pretty well known, Asia, Europe, uh, North America itself, and, and the Persian Gulf. And by far the most plausible and significant potential uh, dominator of one of those regions is China and Asia. China's, you know, half of, 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 of Asian global GDP, Asian GDP. And 
and it's about a quarter or fifth of global GDP. And Asia, meanwhile, is the most important theater of the world. It's 50, roughly 50 percent and growing in global GDP. So, so our goal is to deny China regional hegemony over Asia because that would very fundamentally, in my view, sort of detract and undermine Americans, particularly their, their prosperity and then ultimately their freedoms. And we can see this happening in real time in other countries already. And then so to get there is the second is the military strategy of denial. Basically, to deny this outcome, we have to work with other countries through what I think of as an anti-hegemonic coalition to, to check Beijing's domineering ambitions. The problem is that Beijing uh, has, a, has, I think, both the will and the way to try to collapse or short circuit this aborning coalition through the focused application of its power, particularly its military power, which is growing not only absolutely, but in relative terms, in terms of the military balance in Asia. And so the second uh, meaning of that denial is that we need a military strategy of denial, and that is to deny China's ability to subordinate one of our allies within that anti-hegemonic coalition. And I kind of have a, you know, a, a way of categorizing that, but, but in civil terms, it's basically to defend countries like Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, and Taiwan well enough that China can't put them under its, its thumb. And if that if we can achieve that, then that anti-hegemonic coalition will be strong and cohesive enough that China will have to reckon with it and negotiate the terms of its continued rise on on terms that are are sufficiently uh, respectful to our interests. So before we get into the specifics of what you just said, as I referenced at the top of the conversation, we're a bit into your book tour. I was lucky enough to speak with you at the start. What's been the general reaction on all sides of the aisle. I think you've done a great job of getting everyone from the New Yorker to more conservative spaces to engage with you. So just love to see your spectrum of how folks have interpreted or responded to the arguments you're making here. Well, thanks. No, that's kind of you. And it, it has been a really keen uh, focus of mine to make sure that, you know, despite my own personal uh, political views and otherwise, that that this book speaks to a wide audience, because I don't think it's a, it's a partisan or, or kind of a, a narrowly focused book to one side of the political spectrum. Um, and so I've, I've been very happy that it's been received in that spirit. I'm, I've done some events and I'm going to continue to do events on more center left. And, and actually, I'd be interested to talk more on the kind of dissident left or the, you know, whatever, I don't want to say far left, but, you know, the kind of more hardcore, more populist left, if you will. That's one area I haven't uh, plumbed as much as I would have liked, um, you know, because I want to speak to everybody and not everyone's going to agree with me. But, but I think it's important that this, this argument be taken for what it is, which is, to basically ensure that Americans, we Americans ourselves, are the masters of our own future and not 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 China. Um, in terms of how it's been received, I've, I've actually been, I mean, I've been pleased in, in a kind of fundamental sense, which is I think people have taken it in the spirit in which it was written, which is that it's a framework and a kind of really hopefully clarifying sort of approach to these really big issues. Um, I mean, Ken Weinstein, your, your, your colleague and a, a wonderful friend and, and thinker, uh, uh, and strategist and expert on Japan and other things. I mean, he, he, he said, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really kind of boiled down and parsimonious. And I think that, that was the idea. And in, in a way, it's a mark of respect to me, to my readers, whether they be experts or in fact, particularly non-experts, that they have these issues presented to them in a very clear and concise and sort of, um, you know, justiciable fashion so that people can follow the argument and decide where they disagree. And decide where they agree and see where it is. And, and another, you know, I really enjoyed talking to uh, Demir and Shadi on, on their Wisdom of Crowds podcast because they kind of wrestled with it. And, and, and Shadi was kind of, I don't like this part, but I got to, you know, you're clear. So I see what you're saying. And that's exactly the kind of because if nothing else, if I can help us clarify 
how we address these issues as a country and, and along with our partners and our allies, then that, that I'll be really satisfied in that respect. It's not a point solution, but hopefully a way of thinking about these problems in, in, in a way that helps our country make those optimal allocations of resources and risk and so forth. So I'm fascinated by your desire to speak to more left populist audiences, given the fact that because of the fact that the realignment speaks to that in a certain degree, the closest that you may have experienced was probably the comment section on YouTube, which I no doubt hope that you did not spend any time perusing. So let's just what would what would you say to that more left audience that you are interested in speaking with? Well, I mean, I think the, you know, just to go down that that track for a second, the premise of the left populist sort of perspective, as I understand it, I'm talking more about the economic focus side, is that we have the national ability to control our future, you know, economic fate, right? That we're not going to just subsume our, you know, sovereignty as an economic actor into the neoliberal pool, if you will, right? And I'm not... I'm not saying I would agree with all their measures. I, you know, maybe some of them I would have some sympathy, probably largely not. But the whole premise of like what a Senator Sanders or somebody is talking about is that we actually have the power to determine our future, that we're not subject to some other international, you know, beyond our borders force that's going to compel us. Now, the current bogeyman is I, and I don't know. I don't know the conversation that well, but the current bogeyman would be the sort of the liberal neoliberal institutions, I would imagine, and multinational corporations and Davos and all that. But those are all going to those are all going to fade in, in in relation to Beijing, right? If Beijing is the dominant actor, so I think there's a, you know, what I would say to that group is, well, if you want to have the argument about whether we can do the kinds of things that you want to talk about, we need to have the power to shape that future, and so it's critical that we not let uh, China dominate. And and while they may have some sympathy for some of the measures that China's taking internally, that Xi Jinping is taking internally, those are going to be benefit China. Their, their deindustrialization is just a taste, presumably, of what China would subject us to in a future in which we became a kind of a tributary state of some sort. The other thing I would say is that, you know, I, I, I'm a hawk on China right now, but I've been a dove in the past on, uh, you know, Iraq and the Middle East wars, as I made clear to Ben Wallace Wells in The New Yorker. And so I'm not looking for a fight. I'm looking to avoid a fight. Now, I, I mean, that I don't expect that to just be taken at face value necessarily. I'm not, I'm actually talking about really reducing our exposure to these peripheral elective wars that we've been fighting over the last 20 years. I mean, I think it's necessary as a strategic matter, as a matter of our husbanding our power. I also don't like them, but you know, it's, it's, it's primarily the first issue. But so, I mean, those are the kinds of points that I would make and whether the, I mean, obviously we're going to have disagree, I'm going to have disagreements with many people on the left about domestic issues. Okay, well, let's have those uh, out in a context in which the American people can, you know, metaphorically fight, fight those issues out peacefully, obviously, but I mean that, you know, kind of have, have the debate, but, but ultimately there'll be our Congress and, and, and our state legislatures and so forth and our, our White House that will that will be able to determine our future. And I think that's very much in question. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about when the left part of the audience reacted to what you were saying on our previous episode, a lot of it reminded me of what H.R. McMaster, also Hudson colleague, wrote about with the, this idea of strategic narcissism, which 
a certain part of that audience would agree with much of what you're saying when it came to the domestic implications, the philosophical point you're making about the country able to write its own destiny. But at the same time, there's this real inability of folks on the left, or at least the ones who tend to be interested in this type of conversation, to understand that China is as much of an actor in this context as the US is. So the pushback is, why do you want war? Bridge. Why does the US want to do X, Y, and Z rather than saying, hey, you do realize that China wants a bunch of things too. And that is in the context of great power competition, why this is a new framework that everyone basically has to deal with. So I think my next question would be, because I'm not sure we've spoken about this before, what does China want in terms of its own strategic ambitions and goals? Well, I mean, your other Hudson colleague, Mike Pillsbury, is of course one of the world's experts on this topic. I I don't know. Uh, you know, one of the things, as you know, I think in the book is I tended to take a black box approach, partially because I think we are going to be pretty limited in our confidence about what exactly they're going for. You know, if they have a clear sense of their 25 year, 50, whatever, 30 year plan, there's a public version, presumably, and then there's this kind of secret version. I mean, it's, it's Communist Party of China in particular is extremely secretive and deceptive. So I just I have low confidence that we'll have a really, really tight sense. But I mean, we don't really need to know because we can kind of see it. I mean, I think what they want is actually the chance not only to shape their own future of their domestic system, but to benefit that and really have a kind of a dominant control over that. Right. Which is they want the world and they want to be as rich and powerful as possible because that's sort of human nature. Right. I mean, I think it's sort of obvious that that they want to ascend the ladder. I mean, they're they're very explicit about it. this. Is not like made in twenty China twenty twenty five. All these things they're they're trying to ascend the ladder of economic development. And as the the left of the economic debate points out, it's not always win win, right? It's not always win win. And I think the Chinese do understand that 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 that, that for them to win, they're going to have to knock the Americans down a couple pegs, right? Because there's going to be one place where industry is clustered, where there's scale, who sets the regulations, et cetera. And I think what they seem to want is, is first a hegemonic position in Asia, which is again, the world's largest market area. And from that position, the global preeminence where they'll be able to, they'll, they'll be the agenda setter. So other people who are criticizing the Washington consensus and all that kind of thing, leave aside the substance of the Washington consensus debate, but like it's going to be the Beijing consensus, right? And that's going to be designed to benefit Beijing, all the critiques of the Washington consensus that they'll, you know, or not all of them, but a lot of them that the left has mounted, that it's self-serving to the United States and whether that's true or not, I'm leaving aside here, but those should all obtain to Beijing. And so what we want is a balance of power. We don't want to hold, we don't want to crush the Chinese. I mean, it is truly one of the world's most astounding achievements to bring all of these people out of absolute poverty into a degree, a high, some of them, many of them, a very high degree of material prosperity. That is a, a world historical good uh, an accomplishment. But on the other hand, we also have to deal, you know, not all th good things go together. So I think that's what I would say uh, we should be worried about. But that goal is going to be dependent upon the costs and the risks of pursuing it, right? I mean, if they can do it easily, they're more likely to do it. And if they can't do it easily and it's going to backfire on them, they're less likely to do it. And that's kind of the way I think about it. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about 
markets and the domestic economic aspect of this style of competition, that seems really foreign to the way a lot of us have approached foreign policy debates, especially over the past 20, 30 years. Can you just speak more about that? Because if I'm trying to find a tie between, let's say, center-left folks who are in the Biden administration that you and I uh, are friends with and largely think there's opportunity but consensus with, they are also interested in that economic side as well, too. So can you speak more broadly around that aspect to a certain degree? Well, I think Jake Sullivan was hitting the nail on the head when he said we need to build a foreign policy for the middle class. I mean, he and his colleagues were doing really important work. I don't know what they came up with, and I'm almost certain that I disagree with some of it possibly most of it, I don't know. But I mean, the notion that the foreign policy should serve the middle class, I mean, it's almost a generational issue. I don't, I don't know exactly how old Sullivan is, but he's, I don't think he's 50. So it's like, I think there's more of a, re- a sort of an understanding of people under the age of 50 that like that, that, that connection needs to be made. Whereas it's sort of the 70 year olds whose mental map is more 1989, 1999, what have you, they don't really get that. I mean, I think, I think, for people, you know, your age, we were just talking about um, a bit younger. I mean, I think the disconnect between American foreign policy and the grandiosity of some of our ambitions over the last 20 years and concrete American interests and the lived experience, economic security and so forth in the United States is, is a given. You know, I, I can remember when there was a lot of confidence, you know, say in the 80s and 90s in American kind of the basic alignment of American foreign policy with uh, I mean, I was young, but with with kind of what we felt like was, you know, in your kind of concrete self-interest, that seems to have been pr- pretty much sundered by the disastrous foreign policies we've pursued starting starting after 9-11. Um, so I think that, well, not starting as, and some of them go back even farther back to the mm-hmm. collapse of the Cold War, really at the end of the Cold War, I would say, uh, exacerbated in many respects after 9-11. But, but I think that's something that, you know, that I think is a basis for for some, and I mean, you know, some of the stuff that Catherine Ty is talking about, I think resonates across the aisle that, you know, it's not sort of, I mean, it's a very different approach than say a Bob Zellick of 15 years ago, which is all trade is good, America benefits, but now people say, well, I, multinational corporations benefited, but did the middle class actually benefit? And that's something you hear on both sides of the aisle. So I think there is a basis for a lot of agreement. And actually, I'm not saying that we should all say, you know, I kind of, oh, politics ends at the water's edge. We shouldn't fight it. No, if we're actually arguing about what the best way to serve that is, that's good. You know, we want it to be politicized in that sense, that it's like a a, a, a boxing match for who's the better advocate for a foreign policy of the middle class. That would be great. And I, th- I think that's kind of where we're fitfully moving. I'm not... I'm not sure we're, you know, I don't think we're, I mean, huge disagreements on the, on the right, obviously, with the, the Democrats package going through the Congress right now. But I think there is, there is an aborning sense that that's, that's where we need to head, which is, which is encouraging. That's really interesting. I want to go there for a second. What argument, so it seems to me, as someone who just covers this space from more of a media perspective, we're really not living in 2015, 2016 anymore. There is much more mainstream consensus about this great power competition framework. That would have been the argument three or four years ago. What are these arguments that we are moving towards? You said fitfully, but what what are the central arguments, left, right, center, whatever, that we should be concerned about in this moment? 
That's a great question. I mean, I tried to narrow down. I mean, that's in a sense what I'm trying, what I was trying to do with the book is kind of focus us on the right questions so that we have more productive and op- in sort of optimizing debates. I mean, I think in my, in, in the context that I'm particularly exploring, it'd be like, well, what's the American defense perimeter? So if we're mm-hmm. arguing about whether to defend type one and how best to do so, we're having the right argument because that's a tough question, but it's focused on the right area. If we're arguing about <clears throat> how do we correctly and optimally reduce our military footprint and exposure in Europe and the Middle East, we're having the right argument. Not if we're saying, oh, we need to stay everywhere and keep doing, you know, and, and how do we do that? And let's double our defense spending or these kinds of things. That, that's not the right argument. We want to be we want to be dealing with reality on, on the more political economic side. It would be what is it? What is a trade policy look like that has the confidence of the American middle and working class that, that it's going to benefit them and be fair and equitable, but is also needing our strategic requirement to be able to generate scale to, to match the Chinese economy, which is 1.4 billion people. So we, we clearly can't just be an autarkic economy because in that economic competition, we will just lose because they, as they ascend the ladder of, of prosperity, they will just outclass us in scale, right? So we can't, have, so, but, so we need some trade arrangements, but, but you know, the foreign policy elite types tend to say, well, trade, we have to have trade, blah, 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 trade, trade, trade. And it's like, well, uh, are you listening to what the American people are saying, which is that they don't trust? In a sense, it was that argument that blew Americans trust in trade. Mm -hmm. So we need to, you know, we need to grapple with that. I don't know what the answer is, but I mean, since that's the foreign policy for the middle class point. Another one is the social media companies, you know, like I have personally a lot of concerns about the social media companies. But how do we, you know, whatever your view of how to deal with social media companies, how do you do that in a way that maintains our having the technological lead? and the kind of economic context to be able to compete with the Chinese at, at the cutting edge, you know? I mean, that that's an important consideration, right? Um, and that needs to be addressed by those who want to reform the social media company or the way the social media companies are governed. So those are some of the some of the questions that I think, like, if they're, if they're clear, then we'll spend our time. Another one would be, like, how do we get allies to do a lot more and bear more of the burden? Not, like, whether it's possible or whether we do it, but no, like, how do we do it? You know, those would be the kinds of questions I think we should be focused on now. I need to be a devil's advocate here, though I directionally agree with you. You basically said an unproductive conversation is basically how do we maintain status quo in Europe, Middle East, abroad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think most people who would categorize themselves as your opponents would say, well, we're not literally saying that. So I, I'm just, I, I'm just a little more, more curious for a specific. What do you think? Let's say in the Asia Pacific, what is an Asia Pacific line of questioning that's unproductive or doesn't go somewhere? Yeah, I mean, unproductive. Like, I mean, that's obviously a tendentious framing on my part. So I'm not like, I mean, I'm saying that. My, I mean, I just disagree with their framing. I'm not, I'm not like trying to be a you know judge, a jury, and executioner on the point. But I mean. <laughs> You know, just to put a fine point on it, my view is that we need a high standard of military capability Mm -hmm. in the Pacific, and that will be extremely demanding within the context of plausible defense budgets going forward, not to mention American political resolve. And that that is invariably going to require, it already does require, and we haven't been meeting it, really much more significant and, and urgent allocation of the existing resources we have available, which are less than they seem because a lot of that stuff is tied up, a lot of that money in the defense budget. 
So I just think people who are saying, you know, for instance, people who are saying, okay, you know, there's, there's one counter line of argument, which is you found more on the right among some friends of mine, which is, um, yeah, Bridge, I think we need to have a, uh, uh, you know, more of a focus on China and Asia and a strong defense there, but you're exaggerating. We can walk and shoot gum at the same time. Uh, we could def- increase the defense budget and the Chinese aren't as, as powerful as you're making them seem. That's one argument that I just think, I don't think it's grappling with the reality of the situation with all due respect to these friends and, uh, and others who are, who are making that point. You know, because I don't think the American people show any indication of being willing to increase the defense budget significantly. I'm not sure they should, given how much, you know, the debt and everything else we should be spending on. The fact that we're, you know, we all spend 3% of our income on the defense and our laggard allies spend barely over 1%. So how is that equitable for us? But I mean, we might get that situation where it's compulsory, given the alternatives, but I'm not like jonesing to do it. Another argument is that I don't think carries a lot of ways more on the left is like, well, you don't need so much of a strong position because the Chinese can be deterred by a lot less than what you're talking about. You know, uh, 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 a defense posture that's more, it's often hard to get like exactly what they're saying, but like it's basically kind of a show as far as I can tell. It's like sort of deterrence oriented and denial oriented. Use these words in different ways than I use them. Um, and I just think that's not grappling with reality. I mean, the Chinese are manifestly building up their military to project power, and now they're building up their nuclear forces dramatically. And I think they're pretty bloody minded. I mean, I, in the sense of not like they're you know, like drinking blood, but they are prepared to kill and die to achieve their goals. I mean, that's kind of in the nature, it's in the DNA of the, of the Communist Party of China. Uh, it is in the DNA of the Communist Party of China. Um, so I don't think that's a very productive argument. I mean, I, I actually think a more productive or a more useful argument or like straightforward argument would be like, I mean, I guess um, what's the guy? Richard Hania, I think, you know, or some, he, he makes the point, doesn't matter. Like we won't, we don't want to do it. It's too costly. And we'll just live with an uh, Asia that's dominated by China. I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure that's what he's saying, but that's, it's di- that's, di- that's directionally. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, basically it's it. It's kind of like, I think you're wrong, but at least we're arguing about he's, he's like matching the scale of the challenge and like adjusting at the fundamental level, which is like, he's prepared to live with that. And I think that is a, that's a defensible position. Uh, or, um, I mean, I, I actually don't know within the constraints we're operating within. And, and if you want to pursue the goal, I, I'm, I'm that I think most of us want, I, I don't really know if there is much of an alternative. I mean, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's actually kind of the counter argument is like, I, I guess the alternative would be to ask the American people to double defense spending. But I just think that's kind of spitting in the wind at this point. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Richard Hanania argument, because in the various group chats I'm a part of with center right foreign policy folks, Hill staffers, et cetera, his tweets tend to get pushed around a lot because he, like you said, says it very directly. He says, well, yeah, like China Fair. is doing X, Y, and Z. We don't want to do ABC. Therefore, get used to it. This is just, once again, combining the political pragmatism that you're referring to. I don't agree with that position, but 
what is just like the straightforward, as you said, you don't agree with that position, but I think that position is also driven by a certain degree of pessimism about American society and its own political institute, which is why it actually matters. So it's not just a question of, hey, I think we're a fully functional um, foreign policy community, we're a fully functional nation, but in the face of that, we're still going to choose to not do something, right? So this isn't post-World War II saying, hey, we're going to let the Iron Curtain go because there's nothing we could do. It's actually saying- Looking at the next 20, 30 years, we shouldn't be optimistic about our abilities um, as a country in this context. So what, what do you just say to people who advance that more pessimistic argument? Well, uh, I guess I would start with, um, I think you really need to grapple with the consequences, because if you're going to be fair about it, uh, you should look what China will be in the face, which is a China, especially one that doesn't perceive a serious counterforce or counterbalance from the United States, will be incentivized essentially to push even farther, right? So I think if you're in that context, you you kind of need to be prepared to live in a world where the the, the global trade flows, the global economy, and ultimately our jobs, and, and frankly, our ability to speak and be free will be highly conditioned at a minimum, if not determined by China, because all of the major companies will then invariably become Chinese because that's actually what they're actively trying to do right now when they're not in a dominant position. So like, but it's, it's great to have the, the world beating companies it makes you richer. Uh, you're, you know, people have better jobs. You can regulate them, you know, uh, the, presumably the yuan would become a, uh, the reserve currency at some point. I think almost certainly, and then that would be the exorbitant pr uh, privilege that we've enjoyed, which obviously has its pluses and minuses, but I mean, it's nice if you can get it. So I think, I mean, and I think we would have a kind of, um, you know, I mean, in that sense, you would probably, they would probably need to wrestle with the question of whether we would become like a sort of a fortress America, where we would have more of an autarkic economy and really focus on defending ourselves and maybe our immediate sphere, try to establish a dominant position in the in the hemisphere. But I actually think that might actually be quite difficult because a lot of the, particularly the South American economies, which is where a lot of the wealth is, or GDP, are going to orient towards China, especially because they're, they're natural resource producers. So, or would we just live as as a kind of a secondary or, or tertiary member, probably secondary member of a Chinese-led order? And in fact, that's a decision that many countries have made in the past. I mean, Korea, Vietnam, uh, other countries in the, Thailand to some extent in the past did make decisions to be tributaries of, of Beijing. So it's not a crazy decision, but it's certainly not compatible with the, the, the political structure and political you know, approach that, of the United States as a free republic or even really in some sense going back to the colonial days. Uh, but so I think that's, that's what I would say on that front. The other thing is I would say they go overboard in their skepticism about our ability to, to do things. So, I mean, I'm very worried about American society in a lot of ways and equality. I mean, I have my view, you know, obviously, I'm, well, obviously I am conservative on, on a lot of issues and most issues, I guess. So I'm very worried about that, but I just, I don't think it's actually true or evident that we are incapable of acting in the international arena decisively or, or capably. I mean, for one thing, we're probably more unified after 9-11 than we've ever been. And we made a lot of mistakes then in that period. And, you know, we're actually fo focusing more on China now, despite intense 
polarization. And also, I mean, we go back farther in American history. And I mean, you know, the I mean, 1970s, when we when we started to focus again on the Soviet Union, which ultimately led to the collapse. I mean, American society was in bad shape. I mean, crime, you know, sort of uh, the the pitiful giant kind of stuff. Or back to the, you know, World War II, even we think of it, but it was preceded by the 1930s, which is the Depression, the Bonus Army, widespread unemployment. So, I mean, I, I, I tend to think American society is always sort of, there's always this high noise factor. That's kind of part of the deal. Um, but I don't think it's, in, it's, it's not inconsistent with us doing, doing what we need to do in the international arena, at least if history is any good. I'm so glad you said that last part because there's a very ahistorical nature to the doom case, especially when focused on American society. So, you know, post-Civil War era, like you said, first half of the 20th century, if people think that what happened in Afghanistan last month would push things in the wrong direction imagine the period after the vietnam war and i am i've just i've just i've just yet to hear someone because i've asked this question to a lot of these people very directly why is this moment worse than all of those moments and there's not a particularly coherent answer because i think on a pure historical basis it's just not um <laughs> well that and also it's it, like it's not connected to concrete i mean actually farid zakaria had i mean a lot of the times I'm, you know, I very much disagree with him on, on what to do about China, but he made the point, he was sort of like, actually, American economy is doing really well. We're coming out of the pandemic well. And like a lot of indicators are showing that the blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, but, then, but our political polarization is so terrible and crazy. It's going to, our country's about to fall apart. And I was like, well, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I mean, after Vietnam, we had stagflation, you know, Nixon's impeachment. Political I mean, assassinations, like actual, yeah, like actual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, I mean, mass drug use, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, so things were objectively far worse in a lot of ways. And I sort of, a lot of this is, a lot of this is about perception and, and I don't know. I mean, it gets into the, obviously the domestic stuff, but I just, I mean, I think we're actually in a pretty decent position. I, I think the biggest problem is the scale of the of the rival. I mean, China is something like we've never dealt with before in terms of size. So my last question here then would be, what next? So you, you, you've released the book. It's been out there. Like you said, you're trying to get conversations moving in the right direction, especially regarding the questions you're asking. Where, where do you just see yourself, the broader project going as you're coming out of this period? No, that's a great question, Marshall. I think it's one you'll be interested in. I mean, I actually think where my head is, is to dive deeper into a, a question that I sort of thinly answered in the book. Uh, and I've, we've talked about it a little bit here, but I want to have a much tighter explanation, which is what's in it for us? Mm -hmm. What's in it for regular average Americans, right? Because, um, you know, what we're talking about is going to be incredibly costly from just a financial point of view. And it could be from a human point of view. I mean, if we get in a war, it could be really, really awful. So we have to have a very clear sense of what we're about if we're not going to falter or fail or make the wrong move, et cetera. And I don't think that's been offered yet to the level of <laughs> rigor and clarity that, that the American people deserve. I think the American people actually kind of get it at an intuitive level. So, I mean, 
China is rising on people's threat picture. I think that how, how, how deep that willingness to do something about it is probably a lot thinner than it may appear in some of that polling, but it is rising. And I actually think a lot of the things uh, that people perceive, I mean, in a sense, like deindustrialization, a lot of people outside of the Beltway may see China as more of a threat than people inside the Beltway because the Beltway is relatively insulated from these things. Whereas people say China is a predator or they've taken our jobs. They actually see, they feel uh, much earlier some of the th- some of what the China threat will ultimately pan out to be. Not it's not a, a straight line, but there's a. I think they they may anticipate it more than than many of us. But I but I want to I want to sketch out exactly or not sketch. I want to have a much clearer picture of what it's going to mean for Americans to live in that China dominated world, and then I want to give a clear picture of what that our goal might be. You know, because my my sense is okay. We got to keep it ever, always tightly connected to regular American citizens' interests. So what's in it for us? And then what are we trying to do in light of that? And that's and that's much less of that's much less of a military question. It's really more of a political economy uh, and kind of political question. No, I'm I'm so glad that you're closing with that because once again, as someone who's surveyed the debate, most of the pushback to what you're saying basically comes down to it not being worth it for an individual person at a economic level, at a military level, at basically every single level. And then when you combine that with the doom articulation that Richard, Hanania, and folks are putting out there, that just leads to just accept this reality because whatever they are advocating for would be much worse, even if you're not particularly satisfied with tech companies doing censorship or any of those other bits there. So I think that's a really helpful place for people who are thinking about where this project goes next, because that's just the, they're just like, cause like you're saying there still just isn't a tight, strongly 30 second articulatable case for why this stuff matters at a broader level. So that's just really important. Great. No, thanks Marshall. That's encouraging. All right. Well, Bridge, thank you so much for joining us. Um, the book, of course, if you have not heard this a million times so far yet, is The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Hope you all check it out. I greatly enjoyed it, and along with my previous conversations with Bridge. That's all we have here. Huge thank you to everyone for tuning in. Huge thank you to Mike, and a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. We'll see you next week. 